This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Yes, some snow has fallen in the mountains and more is expected, but Rocky Mountain snowpack is low, the lowest in 37 years. And that's not great news for the seven states that rely on the Colorado River for water. KUNC reporter Luke Runyon is following this. Water is his beat. And Luke, welcome back to the program. Thanks for having me, Ryan. What does this low snowpack mean for, as you describe in one tweet, our most important rivers and streams? Well, we rely really heavily on snow here in Colorado and really throughout the West to supply enough water for really everything that we use it for in our kitchens, bathrooms, to water our lawns in the summertime, irrigate crops that we grow. And all of that makes the winter's snowpack up in the mountains really important. Um, So I did the most recent check of snowpack data this morning, just before I came on with you guys. And right now, statewide in Colorado, snowpack is sitting at about 52% of average. And if you zoom out a little bit further, you look at the upper Colorado River basin. So that's snowpack in Utah, Wyoming, New Mexico, and in Colorado. And that's sitting at 58% of the average. Um, And like you said, if you look at the Southern Rockies as a whole right now, this is really one of the driest starts to a winter that we've had in recent memory. Um, It's really tracking closely to 1981, which was an extremely dry winter. And because snow is so important, um, it sort of sets off a, a cascade of dominoes. If you have a really low snowpack, it causes lots of problems later in a year. Really, to understand snowpack, it's important to think of it as a reservoir. So we have man-made reservoirs that hold lots of water. The largest reservoir in Colorado is the snow that sticks to the mountains. Yeah, we rely really heavily on layers of snow up in uh, the mountains here in Colorado, but also in Wyoming and Utah to feed the Colorado River Basin. And and that's really the lifeline for the West. About 40 million people rely on the Colorado River. Um, It irrigates more than a million acres of crops. So it's a super important um, river. And if you don't have the snow to feed into that river, um, you're going to have a, a really tough time. Um, basically, all of the up, upper basin of the Colorado River, the streams empty into Lake Powell, which is a really important reservoir in the West, right on the Utah-Arizona border. Right. And right now, the lake's inflow. So all of that water that's going to enter into the reservoir is anticipated to be about 55% of average during the spring runoff, given the snowpack figures that we have right now. Okay, so are water managers you're talking to really nervous? Do they think that this can be made up? Uh But by that, I mean, might there be lots of snowfall later in winter? Yeah, I think panic is not quite where people are right now. I think there's definitely a creeping concern among water managers. Um, They always tend to use this bucket analogy when they're talking about reservoirs. So if you think of a reservoir like a bucket, you've got water going in the bucket, you've got water going out of the bucket, and they're relying each year on snow to fill the bucket back up because there are lots of obligations for that water to be used for. Um, And so they're always sort of draining it and hoping that there's enough snowpack to fill the bucket back up. And when you have a really dry year, you're not as hopeful that it's going to be able to fill back up. Now, right now on the ground, at least in most of the, the upper basin states, so Colorado, Wyoming, Utah, 
the reservoirs are in a pretty good place. They're okay. not in dire straits. A lot of them are either having an average capacity or a little bit above average. But you go a little bit lower down in Arizona and California and things don't look as good. What are the chances that this could be made up with snowfall? Are we so far behind that that's not possible? No, I think it's definitely possible. And we've seen winters like this before, where it's gotten off to a really dry start. And then all of a sudden, the weather systems sort of shift. And you have a series of snowstorms that can really make things up. Right now, we're at such a deficit that it's sort of hard to imagine that we're going to make it up um, completely, that we're going to be able to fill that deficit uh, completely. But I still think, you know, Water managers are sort of sometimes to their detriment really optimistic. Um, you talk to you talk to them and they say, you know, all it takes is just a couple more snowstorms, and they'll list off usually um, some of the more epic snowstorms that we've had here in Colorado, and say, you know, we could just get one of those storms and we could be right back on track. Um, but it would take quite a, a series of snowstorms at this point to bring us up to what an average year would look like. Okay, on this program, Luke Runyon of KUNC. We have talked a lot about the first statewide water plan in Colorado developed under the current governor, Governor Hickenlooper. Uh, Is it making a lick of difference in how prepared the state is? Well, I think if you look at uh, what it takes in a dry year, so I think people's ideas about uh, the water plan sort of become more crystallized during a drought. Everyone sort of cares a lot more about where their water is coming from when there's not enough of it to go around. Indeed. So I think if you're looking at this, the way that this snowpack year is sort of um, rolling out, you will hear from water managers, we need more storage, which was something that the Colorado Water Plan was calling for. And so if you have a dry year, all of a sudden that argument becomes a little bit more urgent. Um, the plan also called for more urban water conservation. Um, and that is definitely something that would be brought into sharp relief if the rest of the winter stays just as dry it is, as it is right now. You'll see water management agencies like Denver water, northern water, sort of ringing the alarm bell a little more um, strongly saying, you know, we really need to be focusing more on conservation um, to make up for for this deficit. Of course, those are the actions we saw a few years ago in California in the face of drought. Uh, Last month, you went to a conference of water managers in Las Vegas. They discussed something called the Drought Contingency Plan. This is a deal involving Arizona, California, Nevada, related to water use. Uh, Of course, those states are downriver from us. Mm -hmm. And I understand all eyes are on Lake Mead just outside Vegas. When it comes to this plan, just briefly, will you explain it? Yeah, so the drought contingency plan is really this sort of larger recognition that there really just is not enough water within the Colorado River Basin to meet everyone's needs. And so some states that have been maybe taking more of their share of water over the years, like California, are now coming to the negotiating table and and saying, we know that we need to be taking cuts in how much water that we use. So let's sit down and actually put some numbers behind that. And a lot of the deal is structured around the level of Lake Mead, which, like you said, is just right outside Las Vegas. It's the largest reservoir in the country. Um, And if Lake Mead drops to a certain level, then these sort of triggers go into effect where the states are 
Arizona, California, and Nevada are going to be forced to cut back on the amount of water that they use. Um, and, you know, even though it seems like it's a far place away from us, it affects everything of the entire Colorado River Basin. We send water downstream to meet obligations down in those states. Um, the Really, the whole Colorado River Basin is so connected, and, and one action that's taking place at one end of the basin affects us up here in the upper part of the river as well. Of course, I picture those bathtub rings that are often visible around <laughs> Lake Mead. And you can see them. Um, I mean, it's really, I was just there in December and you can see this stark white bathtub ring that is uh, right above the water level in Lake Mead. There were some photographs in the Hoover Dam of uh, a really wet year in the 1980s where they actually had to use spillways to get rid of the extra water. It's really hard to imagine now going to Lake Mead and and looking at the reservoir and how low it is. Um, At that point, you could have probably jumped off the the side of Hoover Dam into the reservoir and been just fine. Uh, With how low it is these days, I don't think anybody will be jumping off of the Hoover Dam into Lake Mead. Uh, nor do we advise them to do so. Luke, thanks for being with us. <laughs> no. Thanks, Ryan. KUNC's Luke Runyon, who covers the Colorado River Basin and water issues generally in the West. His reporting is supported by a grant from the Walton Family Foundation. And we spoke about a record dry start to winter. This is an inmate preparing to read a children's book to a pretty special audience. Dior, this book is called ABCs with Pooh. I know you know your ABCs. I just want to let you know that I'm thinking about you, and I love it when you sing your ABCs to me. The recording will be sent to his child. Christopher Robin is sad. This blustery autumn day, he lost his ABC blocks. They seem to have blown away. That recording was done at a jail in Pennsylvania, and now this program has reached the Weld County Jail in Greeley and soon the Boulder County Jail. The program's run by criminologist Kyle Ward at the University of Northern Colorado. He was looking for ways to connect families, even when one parent can't tuck their kid in at night. Kyle, welcome to the program. Hi, thanks for having me. You actually think this can help people stay out of jail once they're released. We'll talk about that in a moment. Uh, but the recordings are pretty touching. What do they mean to the inmates? Uh, I've had a long slew of great conversations with inmates that just say that they are so passionate about the program. They're so happy to be able to maintain any type of a social bond or relationship with their kids. Um, that it really, I've never, of course, walked out of a interview um, with negative feelings. You interview them as well. This is part of research that you're doing related to recidivism. Um, but what led you to, to using this, these audio recordings, as a way to help? Yeah, it actually started back when I was in my Ph.D. program at Indiana University of Pennsylvania out in Western PA. Um, I kind of took over the program out of from three other Ph.D. students who started it in, I think it was 2011. Um, and it's it's, we're not alone here. This is based off of what we call a kind of storybook programs that a lot of jails and prisons have. Um, it's more common in prisons, even halfway houses I've seen. Uh, some places utilize video recordings. Um, in our, from my experience, I just recommend 
and prefer, I'd say, I assume, to use um, audio recordings to try to downplay the fact that their parent is incarcerated. So I even edit down any doors slamming, any loud conversations in the background, because some of these parents don't necessarily even tell their children that they're in prison or jail. What is the big picture here? What do you think this kind of connection between parent and child might mean long term? Because if, if this is being done in jails, the assumption, right, is that most of these parents will be out of jail at some point. Yeah, sure. So especially in, in Weld County Jail, um, we're we're currently in a, a pilot phase of the program. And it's been going on for about a year now. So we've seen 32 um incarcerated individuals so far, and most of them have been uh, what we consider trustees. They're low-level offenders, they're sentenced, and they're currently working in some aspect of the jail, either in the kitchen or doing custodial work. Um, So a lot of them are, at this point, have been getting out relatively soon, so within a couple months of the recordings. Um, When I ran it back in Pennsylvania, we had some individuals that were actually still uh, state inmates that had a couple years and were just spending a a little bit of time within the the county jail. So the the long-term kind of goals of this project is I wouldn't go so far as to say it's to cut down recidivism because uh, reoffending when they get out because I don't... I don't necessarily think that a reading program could do that, but indirectly what we have found and what kind of informally we're still uh, working on the research aspect now, but it does support stronger social bonds, um, either building or maintaining them while these individuals are away from their kids. And just having a more solid home life tends to be a good predictor of individuals that don't recidivate afterwards that they are more successful if they have social bonds, bonds with their families, bonds with their children. Help us understand how it works. So uh, this is only for for certain offenders, as you say, um, I guess low-level offenders. And you walk into the jail with with a children's book and a recording device, uh, paint a picture of it. Yeah, so um, we get all of our books from book drives. Um, so they're all all donations. And as soon as mostly from uh, University of Northern Colorado, um, the courthouse up in, in Weld County, um, Judge Kopkow was great. He had uh, boxes and boxes of books that he had for me one day. This was a, um, a judge. Yes. So, uh, I mean, there's support from all all aspects of the criminal justice system for a program like this, because it really doesn't hurt anybody and only helps everybody the way I see it. And so, so you've, uh, you've got those books. Yeah, so we've got these books. I I give them to the jail. So I have a counterpart on the inside uh, in Weld County Jail right now. Her name is Stephanie Tornquist. She's, uh, I believe, the clinical supervisor of um, inmate services. So she does a lot of the legwork on the inside by distributing the books. So if somebody wants to take part in the program, I believe how it works is there's a flyer hanging up in their cell blocks, and they fill out what they call a kite, but basically a, a written form to go to inmate services. Stephanie Tornquist then make sh- does a check to make sure that they are legally allowed to have contact with their children. And then uh, they, she distributes books. And then I get a, a list of inmates and I come in about once a week nowadays. Um, and uh, yeah, I meet with them in a private room with a tape recorder, bring their book. And as much as it isn't the most conducive environment because it's kind of echoey, it's kind of loud, there's doors slamming around. We we do the best that we can. So then I, after we're done the recordings, um, I take the 
audio recordings themselves. I edit them with um, Audacity and a uh, edit software, editing uh, editing software, and uh, yeah, record them, uh, burn them on all CDs, and send the CDs home to the kids with the books. Well, let's hear part of another recording. This is from the earlier program that helped start this in Pennsylvania, a mom reading from a book titled The House on East 88th Street. This is the house, the house on East 88th Street. It is empty now, but it won't be for so long. Strange sounds come from the house. Can you hear them? Listen. Swish, swash, splash, swoosh. Swish, swash, splash, swoosh. Have you had the opportunity to be on the, the child's end? What have you heard from families? I actually haven't. So back when in Pennsylvania for uh, what we tried to do is when we would send the um, books out, we'd also send a, a survey to the current care uh, takers. And I think I got one of those back and it was half filled out. Um, now what, I'm, what I try to do is when I have this relationship with the, the inmate, um, I ask them if I can do a follow-up. And so I've sent out follow-up surveys about two months after they are released. And so far, I've been very unsuccessful in getting any of those back. Really? That's interesting. Yeah. What's that about? I feel like it might be that they want to put it behind them, perhaps, that they don't necessarily want to relive that time. They're back, they're with their kid, um, or life, life takes over. I don't know what all of their personal situations are once they get out. So this is uh, headed next to the Boulder County Jail. And I suppose, I'm just curious, why not just encourage more visits, more visitation, as opposed to this kind of audio connection? Um, I mean, that's a a good point. But uh, a lot of times... Visitations are are one thing. They might be able to go in one or one or two times a week. Weld County Jail, for example, if you're going to visit an inmate in there, uh, you don't actually get to physically see them. They have kind of um, a computer interface that you visit with in the lobby, so you never actually leave the jail lobby. So it's more or less skyping or FaceTime with your loved one. Um, so perhaps, I mean, they can come. They sometimes do that. What I've found is that a lot of the inmates do not want their children to come and visit them they don't want to, they don't want them to see them in that light so this is a, a positive um, message and positive relationship that they can continue while they're incarcerated well thank you so much for being with us yes of course thank you kyle ward is a criminologist at the university of northern colorado his program in which inmates make recordings of children's books to send to their kids is currently at the weld county jail and as i said will soon expand to boulder county Dior, you can read this book every day just to brush up on your ABCs. You'll be hearing from me soon. Take care. Love you. A new robotic muscle developed at the University of Colorado may move us a step closer to building a bionic person, or as the 70s TV show called him, the $6 million man. Steve Austin, astronaut, a man barely alive. technology. Better. Stronger. Faster. Stronger and faster are both potentials for a new kind of soft robotics that could be used in human prosthetics, among other things. Eric Acom and Tim Morrissey are members of the team at CU that developed this technology, and welcome to you both. 
Thanks, Ryan. Great to be here. Happy to be here. So before we get into how you mimic muscles, uh, blue sky this for me, Eric. How might you change people's lives with this technology? So uh, the inspiration for soft robotics is to make robots and devices that are much more lifelike uh, with the hope of making robots that will improve our quality of life, whether as uh, prosthetics that are more human-like or uh, robots that help you around the home. Okay, and robots that don't feel maybe so metallic and cold. Exactly. Okay. Tim, the devices you're working on are actuators. Uh, That's the term for the part of a robot that creates movement. But instead of of cold pistons and motors, these are soft and stretchy. I've got examples you've given me here in the studio. Uh, They're super stretchy. I can imagine a child playing with this like Laffy Taffy or something. Exactly. Uh, What are they made out of? That's a great question. So yeah, like you said, an actuator is just anything that gives us movement. That's what we're looking for. Just like humans have muscles to help us walk around or pick things up, we need robots to have those same type of muscles, those artificial muscles. That's what we call them. And so like you said, most devices out there today are made out of metal. They use electronic conductors, things like that. But what we're trying to do here is really introduce something that's pretty new. Other people have been doing it but with limited success and ours are made out of soft things and so when we say soft the most traditional thing you might have heard of is a rubber material right everyone kind of knows what rubber looks like and it can be stiff like on a car tire or it can be like really stretchy almost like um like you said laffy taffy or something gumby gumby exactly And then what we did here, too, that's really unique is we introduced a liquid inside of it as well. And so if you could just imagine like a a soft egg filled with a liquid material, ours is just simple oil. It's actually extremely stretchy then. And you can do some really cool things with it. And are these highly sophisticated materials or things that I have, you know, lying around the home? No, actually, these aren't aren't sophisticated at all. The uh, what you have in your hand now, uh, we actually buy most materials for that from like an art supply store they use it for it's just silicone you buy it in kits people use it a lot for hobbies to like mold uh masks and that sort of thing and that means they're not terribly expensive I right gather? so they're not very expensive the ones we have here maybe cost a uh, three two or three dollars in materials we even make some that cost as little as 10 cents Oh, my goodness. All right. These could be cheap robots. I suppose that's the key to getting them uh, into homes. That's exactly right. What's the point of making something in the lab if it's going to cost hundreds of thousands of dollars or something like that and no one could ever purchase one? Okay. We've described the stretchiness, but what makes them move? Because that, too, has to be fairly flexible and cheap, I guess. Yeah. So what's uh, one thing that's really exciting about these is that what makes them move is uh, an applied voltage. So that means uh, we have uh, conductors on either side of these soft materials, apply a voltage that puts charges on either side, positive on one side, negative on the other. If the voltage is high enough, those positive and negative charges want to attract to each other. So that pull, the pull together and it um, compresses the material and we can use that to make devices that expand or uh, that contract okay, and change so shape. That's sort of embedded in the squishiness. Right. Uh, but doesn't that mean that there has to be a clunky battery pack or this thing has to be plugged in? Something like that, Tim? That's a great question, actually. So it does have to be plugged in. But before you even plug it in, most materials before this used electric conductors. So that's like metals, like copper, uh-huh. copper wire in your house or something like okay, that. Okay. Again, those sort of cold materials. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Cold, rigid materials that might not flex very well. But here we're using what's called an ionic conductor. And that's essentially salt water. And so because of that, the material can still conduct electricity but be nice and soft and interact with our environment really nicely. It's essentially salt water. It's essentially salt water. That's exactly correct. Huh. 
Okay. Uh, they're also quite versatile. At CPR.org, you can look at a video of these kind of squishy, muscular robots uh, picking up something heavy like a gallon of milk, but also delicately picking up a raspberry. Is, is that a tough balance to achieve, both the strength and the agility, Eric? Uh, yeah, that is a, a tough balance to achieve, and um, that's something that soft robots are inherently really good at as compared to traditional hard machines. Um, they, the soft material can kind of conform to different surfaces, uh, which makes it really easy to do a variety of different tasks. Okay. And w- when you try this out in the lab, how much thought do you give to what tasks this robot is going to be involved in? Tim, I'm a lot of thought. <laughs> so we spend a lot of time. Um, it's really important for us when we're doing things in the Keplinger Research Group at CU to make sure that we make devices that, again, we could see leaving our lab. And so that's exactly why we demonstrated picking up a delicate raspberry. Everyone has done that in the world, or I would think almost everyone. And you know that they are delicate. Sometimes they're rigid, or not rigid, but sometimes they're stiff, you know what I mean, like a, an unripe raspberry. And sometimes they like almost fall apart in your hand. And so humans are fantastic at doing that. And that's why we choose these challenges, such as picking up a delicate raspberry, with our devices to really see if they have potential to make it out in the real world. Is it that this could eventually be better than the human muscle in in some regard? Uh, Yeah, definitely. Um, And and even at this point, in some metrics, these devices are better than human muscle in terms of the power that they can provide. Um, Some of these, when they activate, they stretch over 100 times their initial length. Our muscle only does about 30%. So oh, wow. they're, they're right now in these first kind of iterations, we see some areas where they perform better than natural muscle. And we expect in the future to see things like stronger uh, devices, um, devices that are faster than natural muscle. I also understand that they can self-heal. And that's really important when current is going through. Will you explain that for me, Tim? That's exactly correct. So when you say self-heal, you need to think about what does that really mean? Humans can self-heal too, right? We get a cold, we heal. And also we get a cut and we heal. And so in the past... And who knows, robots might suffer an injury of some sort in the home. Exactly, right? They're using those knives to cut up our vegetables in the kitchen so we don't have to. (laughs) Just the onions. Exactly. But so we've done work in the past where robots heal from cuts and scratches or the materials, and and we've done that in the past. But what we introduced here is the the damage or the issues that we really had to get these devices to get out of the lab again and into the real world was that, yes, they're using electricity. And we use pretty high electricity right now, so high voltage it's called. And sometimes when you're using high voltage like that, you get an electrical short, just like anything in the home can get an electrical short, and that can damage the material. But because we introduced liquid inside of our devices, when the electricity passes through that liquid, it just passes through it quickly, freely. But then after that happens, the liquid redistributes or just essentially goes right back to where it was before. And with that, these devices can get that electrical short, handle the issue. Of course, we'll try to avoid that in the first place. But if it does happen, it doesn't destroy our device and we're ready to use it again, literally moments later. All right. What is next in the lab? Uh, yeah, so what's next in the lab is, uh, first, as Tim mentioned, we're using high voltages. So the next thing is to figure out how to get lower voltage. Um, and we already have some success in the lab, some designs that operate at a fifth of the voltage we have now. And we're developing uh, small, compact electronics so that we can have robots that are you know, completely self-contained. We don't have to plug them into the wall. Instead, right. they could operate from a battery. 
Well, thanks for bringing in the squishiness, guys. <laughs> Appreciate it. You're, you're very welcome. Eric Acom and Tim Morrissey are PhD candidates at the University of Colorado and members of a team that has designed soft robotics working like human muscles. We spoke as part of Beta Test, our series about scientific breakthroughs in Colorado. Young kids start off school curious and excited. By 11th grade, polls show 70% of kids are checked out, though. For many, school isn't relevant. But there are educators, even entire schools, that want to change how classrooms run, how teachers teach, how students learn. CPR education reporter Jenny Brandine helps us understand why the system may be ripe for change. Innovation often starts small. Here's how the idea for this story began for me. One day, a few years ago, a kid with saggy pants and waist-length blonde hair told his teacher he wanted more from her. If you would just get up and teach them instead of handing them a freaking packet, yo. A packet. They're like worksheets. Every student I've talked to hates them. There's kids in here who don't learn like that. They need to learn face-to-face. This video went viral. The teacher tells him to get out. The kid keeps going. You want kids to come into your class? You want them to get excited for this? You got to come in here. You got to make them excited. You want a kid to change and start doing better? You got to touch his freaking heart. You got to touch his freaking heart. That's what the best teachers do, not with packets and worksheets and lecturing, which is still common in Colorado's classrooms. I asked Tara Jan, a former teacher who now helps schools foster innovation, to answer this question. What's really the problem with school? It has become really about the stuff, the content, like making sure that we cram as much information and make school as business-like as possible. The system of school is still set up pretty much like it was... 100 years ago. It still relies on grades, tests, homework, lectures, competition, punishments, and rewards. Christina Jean, a former teacher who now consults on innovation, says the system, as it's been set up, is really designed to get the results it does. It's designed to sort and rank. It's designed to get kids ready for an industrial post-secondary life. What's wrong with that, you say? Well, one, it's turning off today's kids. Tara Jan says what students, parents, and teachers crave instead is this, a deep connection and purpose for doing what they're doing. Two, decades of science on learning show cramming in information is not how kids learn best. Three, if you look at the skills Colorado says young people should have when they graduate, academics is only one part. Yet it's the only part we test on, evaluate teachers on, and have designed an entire system around. The other skills kids are supposed to be learning are entrepreneurial, civic, professional, and personal. And last but not least, number four, employers are looking for a different kind of graduate than the kid who came out of school at the turn of the century. In 2017, they're looking for kids who can think outside of the box, ask complex questions, and be self-starters at solving a problem, designing something, collaborating with others. That's Jason Glass. He's the new superintendent in Jefferson County. His new plan for the district emphasizes hands-on critical thinking in classrooms where students pace their own learning and maybe do some learning outside of school in the community. So if, if there's a problem in a community that kids are interested in, how can we use that problem or project or concern so that we can teach problem solving and writing and reading and scientific inquiry and, and mathematical procedures? Do they know how to identify problems? There are classrooms in Colorado now where students have more say in what and how they learn. 
learn. Christina Jean, that consultant on innovation, says that helps them not only learn answers, but how to identify problems and questions. From kids who want to build a hydrogen-powered car in Westminster to a first grader in Colorado Springs who writes a letter to an expert asking how computers work. Do they know how to find the resources that are going to help them navigate a system? Can they create networks of support around themselves? She says that's what schools need to teach. How to identify questions is even more important today because we're surrounded by information. We all carry laptops in our pockets. <laughs> the knowledge is not the thing we need anymore. It's how do you make sense of it and how do you apply it. But education policy hasn't really focused on helping teachers make that transition. Many come out of teacher prep programs trained in the sage-on-the-stage pedagogy. So what has policy focused on in this new millennium to update and elevate what happens in classrooms? I wouldn't say that state and national policies over the past couple of decades have been necessarily wrong. I would say maybe they've had the wrong focus. That's Jason Glass from Jefferson County. The way he sees it, there have been several main policy levers. Testing and test-based accountability. Some argue that's narrowed what kids learn about, sapping their curiosity. School choice. Has worked for some to get test scores up, but has it changed what happens in classrooms for all kids? And evaluating teachers. Some say that increases Caution inhibits risk-taking in teachers. Bottom line, those three things are really macro policies intended to create systems and rating scales. But we don't ever deeply get into what is the student experiencing on a day-to-day basis, which is a very micro question. So imagine if over the past two decades that we've had No Child Left Behind and Goals 2000. Glass reels off all the measures heaped on schools, costing billions of dollars, through to President Trump's focus on school choice as levers of change. What if we'd spent all that energy and time thinking about what is the experience a student is having and how do we profoundly change that? It's a simple yet complex question. But Glass adds the idea of empowering students to take on the work themselves, to dig into interesting and meaningful problems in the community, isn't new. John Dewey was writing about this in the 1920s. And? Maria Montessori, even before that. And? Rudolf Steiner, before that. Before him? Jean-Jacques Rousseau in the 1700s. And more recently, says Van Scholes with the education watchdog group A Plus Colorado, the open classroom movement of the 1960s, the small schools movement, and the virtual schools trend. And some of those things worked well, and some of those things didn't work. And some of them just faded away. He says it's important moving forward to understand whether past innovations succeeded. And also be more rigorous in trying to understand what it is that we're trying to do and what's different about those things. And not just go after the latest shiny object. If one thing's clear, there's no magic bullet. No one right way to educate children. But a growing cadre of educators are launching micro-experiments to teach and reach kids. In Stories Ahead, we'll meet a teacher who's on a mission to reach those kids who are really disengaged. We'll visit a school where students take charge of their own learning. And look at what happens when kids work in a professional caliber video production lab their teacher designed. Stay tuned for the future of learning. Jenny Brundine, CPR News. When it gets freezing cold in Gunnison on the western slope, a band of brave skaters goes chasing wild ice, that is, frozen lakes and reservoirs they can zoom across on their blades. Bruce Bartleson, at 82, is one of those wild ice chasers, and he's on the phone from his home in Gunnison. Hi, Bruce. Good morning, Ryan. The question everyone has been asking ahead of this interview when I've talked about it is, have you fallen through the ice before? 
Not really. I went into my uh, ankles once on Meridian Lake, and that was about it. However, uh, my wife has gone in more than once. She has a duck patch. She has a what now? A duck patch. Tell me about that. Our ice skating, well, that ice skating group uh, has made up some little patches that have a duck, and that shows that you've been a swimmer at one time. <laughs> okay, I see. We will talk about how you read the ice so that you don't fall through, since you have a pretty good track record in a moment. But uh, to understand what wild ice is, do we need to know if there's such a thing as tame ice? Well, yeah, sure. At, at, an, at an indoor ice rink, for example, that's tame ice. Or an ice rink on a uh, frozen uh, baseball field somewhere where they have a hot chocolate and music and so on, that's, that's tame ice. Okay. We're and... out in the wilderness. Uh, sometimes we hike in, and there's no commercial activity nearby. And like you say, we're on lakes, ponds, reservoirs, that sort of thing. And why do you search those out? Why isn't the hot chocolate picture more to your liking? Well, it, well, for one thing, it's too confining. It's too small. We like large expanses of glassy, smooth ice where you can skate for literally miles in some cases. Just like last weekend on Saturday uh, out on Blue Mesa Reservoir, we had a sheet of ice that was four or five miles uh, wide and long, and we skated for several hours Uh, It's a very different sort of thing. It's kind of like powder skiing or diving into a coral reef. It's more aesthetic. Yeah, I just went ice skating. This was actually out at Denver's airport where there's a small rink. And what I found myself missing was, you know, being able to skate across a large surface and really get going. It sounds like you can do that. Gunnison's a a hotbed for this Cold, yes, we have cold about, sport. Yeah, we have quite a few skaters out here in Gunnison. There's probably 20 to 25 of us who are pretty much regulars, and uh, we communicate with each other by telephone, by uh, smoke signals and uh, jungle drums and so on. We all keep in touch, and we know where the ice is frequently. You've been ice skating and chasing wild ice for many of your 82 years. Yeah, right. Well, actually, I'll be 83 in about a month, so okay. we're getting 82.9 right now. But <laughs> any rate, yeah, right. I've been. We got started on this uh, around Gunnison uh, more or less in the winter of no snow, 1976, 1977. We had virtually no snow, and Blue Mesa Reservoir, which had just been completed about five or ten years earlier, turned into a beautiful sheet of glass, and people started skating. And at that time, we weren't very savvy about what was smart to do and what was not. So somewhere in the 1980s, early 80s, a local bike shop kind of got some experts in, and we started learning what we should and shouldn't do, like carry, throw ropes, ice picks, and wear uh, life vests. You wear life vests? Yes. And that way, if you Absolutely. fall in, you float? That's right. Okay. That's right. Of course, even if you don't drown, I, I imagine that water would be so cold as to p- potentially induce cardiac arrest. <laughs> well, no one's ever had cardiac arrest. In fact, just Saturday, one of our group went in, and uh, he was... What we usually do is we carry rocks with us. Now, you asked about the rock business. Do you want me to talk about that now? Uh, the, the rock business. Uh, yes, tell yeah, me about the that. Rocks. We, uh, we, well, most of us carry rocks, and uh, we've had a tried-and-true method, which has worked now for 30 or 40 years. Uh, we go out on the ice very cautiously. We take a rock about the size of a base, maybe a little bigger than a baseball, between a baseball and a softball, okay? Mm-hmm. Three or four inches of diameter. Throw it in the air about 10 feet, okay? 
if it breaks through you and splashes, you run the other way. <laughs> if it sticks, you be very careful, and we usually don't try to skate on that. If it bounces with a boing sound, uh, you know it's safe. We have found that you can skate on a little over two inches quite safely. I see. The bouncing indicates just how thick and strong that ice is. Right. And it makes, it makes a kind of special noise. You have to hear it once or twice to get it, but uh, it doesn't take long. And we've been using this for years, and only occasionally do people go in. Like this Saturday, one of our group got a little bit ahead of the rest of us. Some of the group who were kind of the uh, scouts were throwing rocks ahead, but he got ahead of them and went in, and uh, we had him out in about two or three minutes, though. Oh, I see, which is also a talent you've developed, I suppose, getting people right. out we of the water. Right, we actually practiced. One of our groups, one of our group actually likes to... <laughs> to go in periodically so we can practice with them. And we, you, you learn to throw these ropes. They're a special rope that's in a bag that they use on uh, rafts and in kayaks. And they're in a bundle, and you hang, hang onto one end and throw the bundle at the person. They're about 50 feet long. You're and listening. we also, oh, I'm sorry, we also wear special ice picks that you can use to grip the ice. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we're talking about Coloradans who chase wild ice. Uh, In other words, frozen lakes and reservoirs that they skate across. My guest is Bruce Bartleson at 82. He is one of the wild ice chasers based in Gunnison, Colorado. And I understand that you still use skates, speed skates that you got in 1951. Is that right? That's correct. Yeah, they're they're called planners. At the time, they were the top-of-the-line racing skates. Um, uh, I've I've, uh, kept them in good shape. Uh, They were in the closet for a number of years. When I first started teaching here at Western State College in the uh, 60s, I didn't skate for a while, but starting again in the 70s and then Starting in the 80s, we became pretty much of a group, and we've been skating now uh, pretty regularly uh, as a group since 1983, 84, or something like that. We go out all the time whenever we can find ice. Whenever you can find ice. And tell me a little bit about what that hunt looks like. I mean, I, I gather that you've identified places you've been and you might return, right. but are there places perhaps you haven't skated that you still could? Uh, yeah, there's probably a few here and there. Most of those would be very high mountain lakes. Uh, this year, we had a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to skate on uh, Taylor Reservoir, you know, in Taylor Park, just the other side of Cottonwood Pass. Uh, and that was frozen like a sheet of glass for miles and miles. And we had a wonderful time skating on that for about three or four days before it snowed on it and wrecked it. I was going to say, if there's a lot of snow on the ice, that that doesn't make it terribly conducive to skating. No, no, exactly. Because we like wild ice with wild, you know, very, very large expanses. <clears throat> we, uh, yeah, snow, snow ruins it. Even if it blows off, there tends to be little patches here and there. And if you hit those patches, it slows you down. It's like skiing on patches of dust. It'll bring you to an abrupt stop. I understand that it can be something of a trek to get into these reservoirs. Some sometimes. of these, uh, yeah, some. The one of our favorites, which we haven't been able to get to yet, is in the Black Canyon, just west of town, about thirty miles. We go down the Curacanti Trail, which is about um, eight hundred feet vertical on a steep uh, Park Service trail. Oh, wow. And uh, about two miles each way in, it 
comes out actually on the still water of the upper reaches of Morrow Point Reservoir, in between Blue Mesa Reservoir and Morrow Point Reservoir. And that's that's quite a trek. Yes. And some of the group has been going, this year has been going into the Lake Fork Canyon, uh, the Lake Fork of the Gunnison, which uh, starts out near Lake City and then comes into Blue Mesa Reservoir. So getting there is half the fun, I suppose. Yeah, it's, that's why it's wild. It's yeah, I, I like to say it's it's ad- adventure backcountry skating myself. <laughs> is it ever illegal to skate on particular, you know, frozen bodies of water? Like if if someone is trying this, are there places they need to avoid? Uh, most of the places we go to are on either forest service or park service land. So that's public. No, we've never had any trouble with people. Now you can't skate on private property, of course. Without permission, right? Without permission. But most of the country around here, what is it? 80% of so of the country around here is public land, either BLM, uh, national park service or national forest. So it's, it's, it's legal. Well, tell us what it feels like when you have, had that experience of trekking in to a remote reservoir and then having it really to yourself. Yeah, it's uh, it, like I say, it's uh, it's uh, it's um, very what, mystical, romantic. It's it's very pleasing. Like I say, it's kind of like it's kind of aesthetic, like powder skiing. And uh, when you get going, you get into the groove, you get into the the zone, as they say nowadays, and you just sail along. It's it's magical. That's all there is to it. Are there lots of other places around this state this could happen if we have people that are listening well outside Gunnison? Yeah, there are. We uh, uh, we see every now and then on Facebook places. There's a, a group around uh, Dolores, Colorado, that I know skates some. They've But they've had to scrape the ice, so it's not exactly wild, and it's right near town. Uh, but sure, there'd be lots of places that, that uh, are available for this sort of thing. But I want to reiterate, I want to emphasize that you really should be safe. Yeah. Uh, you've had a lot of practice at doing that, and we appreciate your sharing uh, both the thrill and the risk of it. Bruce, I, I appreciate your time. Yeah, you're welcome. Bruce Bartleson, retired geology professor at Western State Colorado University and a lifelong ice skater. He's among the wild ice skaters in Gunnison County. Finally today, we were scouring the Library of Congress's National Jukebox. It's an online collection of early 20th century recordings. And we came across a charming song about Colorado from 1924, published by the Victor Talking Machine Company. Imagine you're in a phonograph parlor as we drop the needle on the song Colorado.
Colorado, performed by Henry Burr and Albert Campbell from 1924. I'm Ryan Warner. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Thanks for being with us.